Hey everyone, it's me, Ben, and I need to tell you that this week's podcast is brought to you by Comedy Bang Bang, the new IFC show that is an absurd half-hour comedy that only looks like a talk show. Uh, comedy so nice, they banged it twice. That's a terrible name. Um, Scott Ackerman is the host. Scott is hilarious. We've talked about this before. He is the co-founder of Earwolf, uh, the other big media empire going on right now where you get all your podcasts. Um... Scott is great. The band is Reggie Watts, who is hilarious. Every time they cut over to Reggie, it is just the funniest thing. Uh, and they have these weird guests uh, who are like the biggest names in comedy. Amy Poehler, Zach Galifianakis, Seth Rogen has been on. Tomorrow night's episode has Ed Helms, um, who is always terrific. He'll, he'll be playing some banjo, um, as well as infamous Daredevil-level Knievel will be on the show and uh, other folks like Jimmy Pardo, Harris Whittles, uh, Susanna Hoffs from the Bangles. Yeah, watch this episode, Comedy Bang Bang, every Friday at 10, 9 central on IFC. Uh, it's a great show, and I hope you guys will watch it because it deserves to get a second season. Um, I also need to tell you that we're sort of entering our summer programming on the Nerdist Writers panel. Uh, for the next bunch of episodes, in addition to a couple that we recorded at the uh, Nerdist Space, we're also going to be bringing you some live panels from the ATX Television Festival, which was the first one was held uh, the first weekend in June of this year. ATX is an awesome, super fun festival celebrating television and all things about television. I was lucky enough to get on board and uh, help them out and moderate a bunch of panels, uh, one of which, or maybe two of which, we'll be hearing in the next month. Um, this first one that we're bringing you is the Creators Panel, which features some of our former guests, uh, like Kyle Killen and Liz Tiglar, as well as some folks who I hope to have on in the future, like um, Kevin Beagle and uh, Mark Schwann, the creator of One Tree Hill. Um, but they'll all be introduced in the podcast uh, the moderator, however, will not be, and you'll hear his voice for, first. He is Jordan Levin. He's the former CEO of the WB, and he's the current CEO of Generate, and he's the president of Alloy Digital. Um, and it's a really cool panel about, you know, creating a show and what it takes to get a show on the air and then the experience of having a show. Um, ATX Festival could absolutely use your support. I will definitely be there next year. It's going to be the second weekend in June, and we're lining up even more awesome people uh, in addition to the ones who are there this year. I think the best way to find out about ATX Festival is go to facebook.com slash ATX Festival, and uh, they seem to be updating that all the time. They're currently running a Kickstarter where you can get early access to cheaper badges. Uh, if you're in Austin, or even if you are able to visit, it's absolutely worth your time and effort. Uh, it was really a really fun time. The people who put it together are lovers of television, as are we all, um, and, and it shows. Uh, so please help them out. Give whatever you can. Again, go to facebook.com slash atxfestival. And finally, as a thanks for listening to this long, rambling introduction... Uh, we have a new uh, cover of our theme song. Dan Byrne wrote the theme song. Uh, he wrote it last year when we first started the podcast, and it is really fun, and I thought we'd change it up for our second year. Um, so my friends Kate McCucci and Sean Watkins 
recorded this cover of uh, our theme song, and it is absolutely charming, as are they. So thanks to Kate and Sean, and uh, hope you guys enjoy it. Now entering Nerdist.com. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel on the Nerdist Podcast Channel. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Writers talking writing can get pretty exciting. The talk can be lightning. It's very, very frightening. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Welcome to the Nerdist Writers Panel series, an informal chat about writing and the business and process of writing. Each and every panel benefits A26LA, the national nonprofit tutoring program. For more information on A26LA, visit A26LA.org. I'm your moderator, Ben Blacker. Follow me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker. I'm the co-creator of the Thrilling Adventure Hour stage program in the style of old-time radio, available as a podcast on iTunes and via Nerdist.com. Uh, I've written for the series Super Ninjas and Supernatural. Sort of from my left to right, uh, let me see how we all lined up here. We have Kevin. Kevin Beals, co-creator of Cougar Town. All right. We have Andrew here, who's the co-creator of uh, Royal, Paint, Royal Pains, or the creator of Royal Pains, I should say. Creator of Royal Pains. Uh, Mark Schwann, the creator... Wow, look at that. Rockstar. Rockstar Mark Schwann, creator of One Tree Hill. Uh, Liz Tiglar, uh, creator of Life Unexpected, numerous books, written on many of your favorite shows, fantastic writer. Uh, Noah Howley, uh, creator of The Unusuals in My Generation. And Kyle Killen. How do you pronounce your last name? I've never known. Killen? Killen. Killen. Kyle Killen. Creator of Lone Star and Awake. Two of the finer shows on television that, unfortunately, we never got to see where they all went. But we'll talk about that uh, a little bit. But this is such a fantastic panel. I mean, I have to say, as a producer now and as a... Network executive, this this would be like a wish list. When you put together a list of who do you want to develop with, this is a wish list. And I'd love to start with some really simple questions that you're probably tired of answering, but I think for this room, it's it's a good place to begin a conversation. That's really, when did you start writing? Not professionally, but just when did you start putting pen to paper and really get in a habit of writing, whether it was every day, every week? You know, what age did that start for y'all? Oh, wow. Um, I started when I was a kid. Um, I always had this, like, idea. Like, I want to... My first thing I wanted to do was I wanted to be an astronaut, you know? And then... And yeah. I, I know. And, and, and I grew up in Florida, and I went to, I went to space camp as a kid. So I was like, I'm, I'm on my way. I'm going to be an astronaut. And, uh, and then I remember when I was, like, eight years old, we were at some party with my parents, and... Um, there's this old German guy there, and uh, my dad goes, yeah, this is my son Kevin. He wants to be an astronaut. And this German, he takes a drag off a cigarette and goes, you will never be an astronaut. <laughs> I was like, oh, I better do something else. Uh, but I, I always loved reading, and I, I would always be the kid that went over to my friend's house and like read his books, you know, read Stephen King books is when we were supposed to have a sleepover. So it was young, young age. I was writing comic books, you know, in my bedroom. But I'd say consistently writing really started... And in middle school, it was like my escape. You know, I'd go hang out with my friends and I'd stay up at night and write. My parents were like, what are you doing in there? It's like, don't worry. I'm just writing stories about guys who can fly, you know. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, growing up, I always wanted to have the kinds of jobs that you've had. Um, sometimes I still feel that way. <laughs> I feel like you have the better end of it. Believe me, I, no. 
Uh, <laughs> you just know who the devil is. You face them directly across from the conference room. I think it's better to be outside just saying, assholes! <laughs> I feel much better now. My life makes sense. Thank you. Um, you see all the bad decisions falling in slow motion. Anyhow, go. Um, so uh, I graduated college and... Uh, I uh, applied for a job working uh, as an assistant to someone like you, and um, the guy said, uh, I have an opening for you, but it'll be a couple of weeks, so just kill time for two weeks. So I kind of wrote a pilot on a lark, um, and that got me um, uh, an agent while I was still working at the company. And uh, it was an Internet company at the time when everybody was working in Internet companies. Um, and the company very quickly imploded, and all the people what in... What company was it? It was called Den. Oh, sure. Um, oh, you wrote for Den? Yeah. Oh, wow. So all the, all, the, all the Jordan Levins got indicted for all kinds of shit, and I'm oh, like, no, I no, should no. probably find something else to do. I have nothing in common with those people. Like, numerous ways. I have nothing in common. Um, so, so then I said I should probably do some more of this writing, and that led to a job, which led to another job. Um, and then I had about 10 years of no jobs, um, and, uh, and then this worked out, fortunately. I, I love the German guy that told you you weren't going to be an astronaut. Yeah. How fantastic is that? Um, horrible nihilism. I don't, we don't have enough of that. Did you see this? Uh, this is a long-winded way of getting to the answer to your question, but did you see this uh, thing? So, uh, some teacher somewhere, like in Arizona, was giving out like end of the season awards <coughs> and gave this award to this girl who didn't do her homework. It was like most excuses for not having my homework done. And then her mom like called the news and wanted the teacher fired because she made that she insulted the kid in front of the class. And like I had teachers who right or wrong, like, kicked your ass and was like, you're not good at this. You should focus on this. <laughs> you know? And you, I don't think we have enough of that anymore, but I don't have kids, so if I had kids, maybe I'd be like, leave my kid alone. <laughs> but, um, but I, you've been writing a show for 10 years. But exactly. That was my kid. But basically, um, it was in high school where I had a few teachers that were decent and said, you're pretty good at this, like, you should pursue this. And I took it for granted for a while, and then... Uh, when I moved to Los Angeles, I, I was like, I would do anything. I would volunteer. I would work as an intern. I did all that stuff. And I was reading a lot of scripts and doing coverage. And <coughs> I wasn't that impressed by what I was reading. A lot of them were getting sold. And I was like, really? They bought this? Like, I could probably do this. And so, and I, like everyone else, I started, I, well, at first I wrote a novel that was terrible. And then I started writing scripts. And what did you move to LA for? I was in a band. I was in a band at the time, and uh, and a bunch those guys like turned tail and ran. You know, you walk into a guitar center, and everyone there is better than you. <laughs> and you're like, what am I doing here? I'm doing. So I had a film degree. I went to the University of Maryland, and I had a film degree. So I started worked for Doug Wick as an intern, and. Uh, my very quick anecdote, because I can be long-winded, is I worked with all, a bunch of other guys as interns, and every one of them went off and got a job, except for me. And one guy came back as my boss, and I was still there. We worked, we worked in this room called The Pit, and I was still there, and I was like the Fredo of the family. They're like, they're like what's going to become of that guy? Like, he's the one guy. He's fucked. That guy can't do it. That's a true story. And eventually, now I laugh at them and don't take their calls. <laughs> so. um, 
Um, I, I didn't have any big writing aspirations. I actually wanted to be specifically a soap opera actress on Days of Our Lives. That was my dream. Yes, I love Days of Our Lives. I really wanted to do that. And Stefano Demerit. Yeah. Got you under his spell. Yes, I was a big fan circa the early 90s, 1991 nice. specifically. But I was very into it, and it was kind of a slow burn of a realization of I don't know if I'm going to be able to be a soap opera star on Days of Our Lives. Like, yeah. I might have to come, to, come terms. to terms with that. And then I thought, but Wait, maybe... Where, you, where were you growing up at the time? Well, I grew up in Dallas, and uh, my love of days started at the tail end of living in Dallas, which was right before high school, and then I moved to Connecticut. Um, and uh, throughout high school, that's when I thought, obviously, I'll be a soap opera star on Days of Our Lives. And then in college, I was like, I don't think this is going to happen. <laughs> and I think I need a backup plan, which was maybe I could be a writer on Days of Our Lives. So Ithaca College had a soap opera called Semesters. And I was like, I'll go write on Semesters. And then I got to college and, like, forgot I wanted to do that and join the crew team, which was weird. But, um, and, and then, then I'm not an athlete, so I had to become a coxswain, which is lame. And so it was, like, a whole thing. So I forgot all about that. But, um, really, my mom did encourage me a lot, thinking back. She always made me write everything down, and she communicates uh, very well in writing. So any moments of, you know, it was, like, the sex talk was in writing. I'm, like, reading it. You know. <laughs> my door, like, don't have sex, and then I come out with wine, I'm like, I already did! <laughs> so, I, that's my writing story. <laughs> it's crazy, because you're one of the most prolific writers I know, so if I, I thought if, I, I thought would have bet that anyone was writing since the day no, they were born. Not at all, no. I thought so you were going in a different direction. Uh, <laughs> anyway. That's crazy, you're one of the most promiscuous writers I know. Well, <laughs> your mom lost that bet. <laughs> That's a late night fan. Exactly. Uh, well, I'm still waiting for the sex talk. Um, I was going to be a rock star, um, but I not a night person, which was a problem. <laughs> Um, and uh, so I, I started as a songwriter uh, originally, and then you realize very quickly that your target audience is 14 years old. And, and I felt like I was overeducated, I guess, to write for that audience. And plus, I um, was tired of living in a van with three filthy, penniless men. So I just um, I started writing fiction on the side. Um, and I had a day job at the Legal Aid Society in the family court in Manhattan, working with like abused and neglected kids and, and juvenile delinquency cases and, and uh, there's some confluence between writing music and, and being surrounded by that kind of environment that, that made me feel like I needed to hide in my office and, uh, and write stuff. Um, and uh, you know then I, uh, I started as a novelist and uh, published my first book and, and uh, then my motto is what else can I get away with so I wrote a screenplay, and um, then, you know, the agents are always trying to push you to go into television. Um, so I started writing some TV pilots and, and stuff. So that's that was my journey. Uh, I think I always... I don't remember when I started. I, I used to... Um, 
my earliest memory of like really knowing that I couldn't stop writing was I used to people used to give me their annual to sign or their yearbook or whatever you call them where you're from, and like I would um, I would take them away and write these really complicated stories about the person who had given me the annual and and they were taking long like every year I would get more, like I had to top what I had written about them last year and it would take a long time and eventually I would go around seeking people's annuals and they'd be like nah it's all right <laughs> I have the other stories we. I, I remember. Um, but I, sorry, I was also an intern at um, Doug Wick's company right out of um, out of film school, and it had the opposite effect on me. Like I, I, um, I read a lot of terrible stuff. Like you, you know, as an intern, there's just a giant stack of things that um, no one else will read but the interns. And coverage, meaning like you, you sort of weigh in on it. Was just you would just write good or bad on the cover of it, and the, the bad stack was very large. But the effect on me was I would read it and I would say, this is terrible, I can do this. And then I would go home and just the same terrible, like all of the same world. I was like, maybe that alien in the bear trap isn't that bad. <laughs> so for me, I actually had to, like, to write, I had to get away from Los Angeles. Like I needed to go where every computer in Starbucks wasn't generating the next great screenplay. So that's why I'm here. So... It's it's interesting because if you think about what everyone really wanted to be, you know, Kyle wanted to be Ben from Felicity and write very long passages. <laughs> you know, Noah wanted to be a songwriter. Liz wanted to be a soap opera actress. Mark wanted to be a uh, rock star. Um, I wanted to be you. You, you wanted to be me, which so misguided. Uh, and uh, and Kevin here wanted to be an astronaut. I still might be an astronaut. You could be. I think that German yeah. knew you were going to be the world's greatest astronaut and was trying to sideline you. You've got to go next before you go positive. So Liz loved Days of Our Lives, which I will admit to. I did as well. Video. It's weird. I videotaped every episode and came home after school and watched it on my Betamax um, in the early 80s. That's uh, I, I, that, that is how my parents still watch Cougar Town. <laughs> <laughs> they, they don't understand. I have some blank tapes the, the I DVD can player, the, Yeah, the DVR does not work. It's like just you hit the one button I programmed it. No, it's too complicated. So there's like this Unabomber compilation of Cougar Town episodes. And it's sitting in my parents' bedroom. Of every, like, right, get Pete, get upstairs, it's on. Record, don't record the commercials. <laughs> what other shows growing up, whether they inspired you or not, what did you love? Were you all TV lovers? I mean, yeah. Andrew, I figured you were, you wanted to be a network executive, but um, like, what TV shows did you just love? Okay, I mean, I watched so much TV with my folks and, and, and family growing up. I'm like totally a, of the Cosby Cheers generation. I still quote like every Cheers episode there is. Um, I was I just I was a huge fan of all those network comedy shows. I mean, that, that, that was that's my founding. And I feel like as I got older, like I discovered weirder stuff, like the British things. You know, like there was a point where MTV, when to me it was cool, was showing uh, Monty Python. And uh, the young ones. And the young ones, yeah. They were sort of, and that's how I discovered that's how you discovered stuff back then. And they, I wish they still did that. Um, and then, you know, so that yeah, just the big big sitcoms that everybody watched back then were my big ones. Uh, the two answers I, I usually give to that question are uh, the West Wing and Say by the Bell. And people think I'm describing the gamut of everything I watched, and it's not that at all. I think they were equally brilliant and groundbreaking in, in the annals of television. Um, and when we're breaking story for Hank, uh, the lead character in our show, I 
feel myself thinking at times, okay, what would President Bartlett do? And just as many times I'm thinking, what would Zach Morris do? Right. <laughs> it's terrifying. Zach could be, you know, he could be president someday. Absolutely. Zach Absolutely. Yeah. In, in Hawaii. <laughs> yeah, it seems to me like I, didn't, I don't watch a lot of TV now, uh, but it, it seems to me like there was, was like five shows yeah. you know, that were on TV when I was young. You know, and I watched Cheers religiously. I, I loved that show and felt, I think I learned a lot about character from that show. I didn't know at the time that's what I was learning, mm -hmm. but when I look back, I, I realized that they were writing such great characters and you could put them in the bar and they could be ruthless with each other, but you felt so safe and you felt like they, they were the, you know, the closest friends and that whole environment. But, you know, it was just like Happy Days was on and, you know, the, like, the Love Boat and Fantasy Island. And, you know, it's like, I just, I, we didn't really have cable when I was young and then when we got it, it was on ESPN religiously and, um, and Showtime because there was nudity. So, you know, but uh, it was, you know, it was just, I didn't watch a ton of TV, but somehow, you know, that... Uh, when you went to school, you talked about the, the same show with everyone else. It was usually, you know, like I said, like, you know, Happy Days was on, so we talked about that. You know, it just felt like TV was always there. And somehow, looking back, I guess it infiltrated somehow into me. I, um, I was not allowed to watch a lot of TV. We had a lot of rules. Uh, but um, Was that written in a note? And, <laughs> yeah, for every hour you wanted to watch, you had to read for an hour. So it was like, it was a lot. But um, I was allowed to watch Little House on the Prairie, which is my favorite show I love. And um, I, we could watch TV on Cosby Night, was what we called it. And we could watch Cosby Show, um, A Different World. Cheers and Night Court and, uh, and Family Ties. It was Family Ties for a while. Um, and yeah, I do remember that being really influential. And I, I actually, when you were talking, I remember being in sixth grade. Like, I was a big Rebecca fan. And I remember being in sixth grade and going into art class and um, describing to my best friend, who's super mean to me, P.S., but she was my best friend. And uh, I would know. That no. tells the tale more than anything else. She's my school the best friend. The super mean best friend. She's <laughs> But, um, but uh, I was telling her about the episode of Cheers, and I remember being so embarrassed because it was the Rebecca episode where she was saying that her nickname was Bat Backseat Becky. <laughs> you can barely say it. And this is before I had sex. As Mark Schwann's written me a note, don't have sex now. Um, <laughs> and I remember being, like, so embarrassed. Like, I was saying, like, the biggest deal. I'm like, her name's Backseat. <laughs> and she's like, what? And I'm like, <laughs> you know, and I was like, I was so like, into it. I was like super. I thought it was very scandalous. Um, but yeah, I, I, that that show too, I think, is very very influential. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember being a huge TV watcher, but um, I remember watching Mash a lot and feeling like there was something about the the realness of that world, and then how crazy it was at the same time. You know, the sort of Colonel Flag, like elevated Joseph Heller kind of qualities to it I really uh, liked so uh, yeah I mean that's what I have to when's it done? Uh, I grew up kind of in the country where we didn't uh, like it was rabbit ears and there was a whole adventure to get you know if you're going to change the station like it was like a whole adventure someone went and dialed in so you kind of committed to like a channel and then but we would get the UHF stations like the high numbers which was where all the so like I, I watched Family Ties repeats religiously because that was that was like a channel you could 
count on. And then we had like 10 movies that we watched over. Like, I feel like I know the, um, the early Whoopi Goldberg camp. <laughs> like, people remember, like, she was like kind of a, like, she was in like action comedies, which I've seen many times. <laughs> They're not bad. <laughs> Great shot. By the way, I wrote script coverage on that Whoopi Goldberg movie that uh, where she was the basketball coach. Oh, right. And it was not Coach Carter. It was. It was was not written for a woman. It was called like Ed, and it was about a guy named Ed. And I wrote the coverage on it. And then I looked up a year later, and I was like, "It's Whoopi Goldberg." That's true. It's an inspired bit of casting. Yes. You can see guys like you in the room going, you know what would be inspired? Yeah. I know it's Ed. called Ed, but I'm just saying Whoopi's on fire. That's my Jordan Levin. It is. I was that, I was that uh, forward thinking. That's right. Um, okay, I'm, I, I want to ask a quick question about spec scripts. Because I think... Whether it's sample scripts, not spec original scripts, but just sample scripts. Because a lot of times to get work, you write a sample script of an episode to show to an agent or to a potential showrunner to get hired. How many scripts did you spec out, whether they were other episodes of shows or original work, features, screenplays, before you actually got your first paid writing gig? Uh, the, the first TV thing I ever wrote was a spec. I mean, because look, it's a it's a great way to learn how to write for television. I think ultimately you gotta you gotta get to write the pilot. But I wrote I wrote a Malcolm in the Middle that I that I worked for like a, you know it was, it was a year and a half of my life. It's gonna be amazing, you know. And it's like really he works at a Chinese restaurant. That's hilarious. Um, and then I wrote a Curb Your Enthusiasm, and then I like and I threw it out because it wasn't any good. And I had like another idea for a Curb, and then I wrote that one. another Curb Your Enthusiasm. And that's what got me my uh, my first my in with an agent, basically. And I think that's what got shown around when I was first getting jobs. I do think now it's a little different. I think you still need a spec, but I think having an original pilot yep. is, is everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the question is really more, I ask, because I think everyone's yeah. written a lot. But yeah. it, it, unless you get real lucky, yeah. you, know, you end up writing a lot before yeah. Yeah. you actually are able to get yeah. paid to do it. Um, I call this my personal experience. I definitely don't call it advice, but my philosophy was to listen to what um, the agent said and then do the exact opposite because mm-hmm. I figured that's what they were telling to their 3,000 other clients, and so they were doing that, and those scripts were ending up on the desks of people like you, and how do you sort of you know hook left where everyone else is going right and make your script stand out a little. And the only spec I ever wrote of an existing show was um, a spec episode of The Apprentice, and it was completely <laughs> ludicrous, but um, I figured it would be easier for them to call somebody and say, here's something you haven't read I would have read that. Um, I would have absolutely have gone straight to the top of the pile. <laughs> but, but again, I'll refer you to uh, the um, 10 years of unemployment that I mentioned. Uh, <laughs> I got fired, so, you know. <laughs> uh, I, you know, it's funny. I used to go to a lot of these things. Uh, I used to volunteer at film festivals, and... And, and sit in a lot of panels, and, and, and I always felt like the people that were talking kind of had a hidden ace that they weren't revealing. Like, I always felt like they had some secret they didn't want you to know of how they did it or whatever, and it used to drive me crazy, and um, there's no hidden ace, really. And I, and I don't know how many of you are here because you want, you, know, you want to work in the industry or whatever. I assume many of you do. Um, you know, it's, uh, there's no one way to do it, um, 
I, I know that when every year when I would uh, look for writers for my show, I like to read original material more than I like to read, you know, an episode of House or something. It was just a personal preference, but if somebody had an original piece of writing, it spoke, it sort of revealed more about their voice to me. You would have read, you you know. would have read an apprentice spec script. Um, <laughs> I may have. Do you have The point I was going to make was that um, I, you know, I'm not the most talented guy or the hardest worker. You do have to get a little lucky. But you know that expression that luck is the residue of design? Um, I uh, hadn't written, I didn't write any scripts. I wrote a, uh, I wrote a um, feature and I was volunteering at Sundance and I sat down next to a guy at a screening that I wasn't even going to go to. It was like a midnight screening. I was tired and I'd worked all day. And as I was walking past the theater, this guy said, um, hey man, we added a screening. Do you want to come in and see it? And I wasn't really going to go because it had been a long day. And I was like, well, what's the movie? And it was the movie was Walking and Talking, the Nicole Hollis Center movie. And I wanted to see that movie. So I was like, okay, I'll watch it. So I went in and watched the movie. And after the movie, the guy next to me was like, what do you think? And I told him what I thought. And he said what he thought. And it turned out he worked for a producer. And so we started chatting. And I said, you know, I have a script. Can I send it to you? And he, he said, okay. And they didn't read it for like a month. But when he did read it, he liked it. And I always think about the fact that I got really lucky sitting down next to that guy at that screening, but I had worked on that script for a long time. I was the only one who loved it, you know, which is what writers do. Um, they love it first, and they love it the longest. And then, you know, I had volunteered at the film festival so that I could be positioned to maybe meet somebody. Um, so all of those things, sort of the stars aligned. Eventually I directed that movie and, and brought it to Austin, actually. It won an audience award a bunch of years ago. And it sort of jump-started my career. But I just, uh, I only say that, it's a long-winded answer of, um, you have, to, writers have to write, and they have to work at it, and they have to work on their craft, and, um, and they have to have something that they really love and believe in, so when they get lucky enough to meet somebody, they can hand it to them, and, and somebody, you know, will discover that talent. I think that's a good point. I mean, my experience is, every one of these people up here on this panel come in with passion, have a point of view about what they do, and the idea of trying to listen and say, well, what do you think will work to someone else, whether it's an agent or whether it's a network executive, you know, that 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 sense of, well, this works, so let's do it again, That that's where that sort of comes from, from executives and agents, and that's not where original creativity comes from. And when you're doing something for somebody else and not for yourself, that's where problems really arise because you lose your own compass along the yeah, way. Yeah, you can't guess because the, the process takes so long. And you guys, um, please, I don't, I don't want to, you know, try to be dominating in this. But you can't if you're trying to guess what's going to work or what's going to be cool or hip or edge, you'll miss. You just have to write your voice and believe in what you believe in, and, and all that stuff that you take for granted will be texture to somebody else and be fascinating to somebody else. I think. Yeah. yeah, well, it's interesting hearing you say that. I, I remember, so with the spec question, I, I was trying to count. I think I've probably written 12 specs starting in college. I think I wrote two news radios, a group Seinfeld, I don't know, Party of Five, Friends, I mean, everything. A couple Dawson's, Alias, Malcolm in the Middle, Westway. It was like crazy, Law and Order. Um, and uh, I remember having written a bunch of them, but just still not knowing, like, the, the idea of writing, there's something comforting about writing a spec because obviously everything's already been established. You have to 
do a story, you know, you have to come up with a story and you have to match the voices, but you don't have to create the characters. And I remember being so intimidated at the idea of writing a, a spec pilot just seemed crazy. And I was working for Winnie Holzman at the time and um, she, I was her assistant and she was doing Wicked and she was writing in her little writing hut and I was sitting reading my so-called life scripts and I was like, I don't know what to do. Like, I don't know what to write, you know? And I was panicked and she's like, honey, you know? And she's like all Winnie-ish and she was just like... <laughs> Winnie-ish. Yeah, she was like, you know, well, why don't you write... I, I, said, I said like... When I read my so-called life, like you're you're so Angela, like I hear Winnie and everything Angela does, it's Winnie. And I'd never kind of put that together before. And I, I said, like, I don't think I have a voice. I was like, I'm gonna be a kindergarten teacher. I was like, I don't even know what I'm doing here. Um, and she was like, Well, why don't you write? It's very dramatic. Um, but I, she was like, Why don't you write about not knowing what you're up? Someone who doesn't know what their voice is. And I was like, you're amazing, you know? <laughs> anyway, I did that, and it was my first spec pilot, and um, I don't know, I was always very grateful to her for saying that, because you're trying to think so hard about like what you need to do and needing to do it so well. Um, and I don't know, you're just trying so hard, and there's something about somebody being like, it's okay, why don't you just write what you know? Um, which is that you don't know. I was like, that's good advice. And she's like, my phones have been ringing the whole time. <laughs> Why don't you stop writing in two <laughs> I didn't. Uh, I didn't ever do a spec. I came in from sort of from the side. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd published a couple of novels and, and I'd written a, a feature and ended up that I ended up selling and, and doing some um, some feature work for a year or so. Was it Whoopi Goldberg as a basketball coach? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's like a Navy SEAL. Whoopi Goldberg. Whoopi Goldberg Navy SEAL? Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. They're shooting. Um, <laughs> we're on to something here. Somebody's going to run with that. Hold on a second. Wait. I like it. Let's, let's resurrect her. Let's pull the knife out of her um, And then, um, you know, then I, so then when I went out to, to do... TV again, the what else can I get away with motto. I went and I sat down with um, with a couple of uh, producers who had deals at studios um, and they were very general meetings of like, well, do you watch TV? What kind of shows do you watch? And then when I left that meeting, I got the call from my agent. This was back in the good old days before the writer's strike where they actually just did things like call up and say they're both going to make you blind script Offers and and I was like, for what? We just talked about what did I watch on TV? But but there is the you know the interesting thing about television is that there there's two paths to the top, and one is to climb the ladder from the bottom, and the other is to come in from the side. Uh, and there is a perception in the TV business that um, if you work your way up the ladder on a staff, that because TV is all about writing in somebody else's voice. So if you spend eight years writing in somebody else's voice, there's a, a bias that people think maybe you don't have your own voice. So if you come in from features or books, they think, oh, this guy has original ideas. And we, you know, and so you can come in from the side and sort of skip a bunch of levels. Uh, so I would say write books and movies and get them published and get them made and then go into TV. <laughs> so so that's, that's my advice. Um... I was like Liz. I think I, I generated massive amounts of... Just if I watched it, I was like, eh, I could write one of those. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I would write them, and I would send them to people, and I would say, this is just as good as... Any, tell me this isn't as good as like any episode of Law & Order. And um, 
I had friends who were in the business, and they said, yeah, it is. The problem is they already have the people with that job. Like, you have to <laughs> displace one of them. You have to show us that you can do something they can't. So um, right, very right. similar to your apprentice, I wrote um, a spec episode of 60 Minutes. So much better than Apprentice. It was like I, th- it's sort of sad um, how long ago it is and how it's my brain isn't wor- like I remember one of them was about Lost. Like you know, it was three reports and Andy Rooney. <laughs> and one of them was about Lost. One of them was about The Office. And it let you sort of write in the voices of those two shows. Which, by the way, when you combine them in a spec script, do not belong next to each other. <laughs> But I can't remember what the third leg of the table was. Oh my god. Anyway. Kyle's rocking a steel train shirt. That's awesome. Yes. Alright, I'm gonna. When I met those guys, by the way, I I kept telling the lead singer at a very early age. Sorry. (laughs) I was like, you gotta change the name of the band. (laughs) I told him a million times. I'm gonna open up for some questions, but I wanna ask one last question. I mean, Noah raised a point which is very, very true that I hear a lot now, which. Which I think is very unfair, but it it is network executives saying that there's a lot of great writers. When you go through and you say, "What do you think of this writer? What do you think of this writer? What do you hear a pitch from this writer?" You're a lot of writers who are journeyman writers who've been on staffs for a very long time. Who the general attitude is, you know, they probably they they've lost their voice along the way, and there's more and more interest now in hiring writers to develop who. Um, have not come up through that traditional apprenticeship system, which is very different than it was 10 years ago, in which you couldn't get arrested. I'm thinking sort of pre-WB, you couldn't get arrested or dare if you were able to develop a show. You certainly couldn't run a show um, unless you had worked on a show for five years and knew what it meant to be a showrunner. And I think it gets to my question, which is really the definition of showrunners changed as you know the definition of success on networks has changed the multitude of networks has expanded the role I think uh, ends up embodying the personality traits of every showrunner in some way there isn't that sort of cookie cutter showrunner anymore and I think for this room it would be interesting if each of you could just talk a little bit about what it what it means to be a showrunner, meaning specifically, how, how do you think of yourselves when you're running a show, and how, how do you run that show? It's it's managing, obviously, a business. You have a lot of employees. It's a large enterprise. Um, but uh, the idea of showrunner, how has that changed in your careers, and when, what does it mean to you? How do you what 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 is what is your definition of that word? Uh, I'm lucky because I get to split duties with Bill back there. You know. Um, and he's been doing it for so long. He's so Bill good says at it. he takes all the credit. He, 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 give him all the credit. I mean, he's been doing it for so long. He's so good at it. I basically got the greatest training program anyone could ever hope for. Um, and I guess the stuff I've taken from that is, you know, you can't. You have. It's going to sound super. This isn't a knock on Bill. This isn't a knock on myself. It's going to sound super douchey, but you you have to. Uh, Manage people, and you have to let people do the work. But then you don't, have, you can't be scared to take credit for that work. Because, and not, and not in a sense of like I've written everything, but in a sense of every decision is ultimately your decision. You know, you can let the people on the set do what they want. You can let the editing, you know, you're controlling the editing. Uh, 
you can kind of let writers kind of go off and go down different paths and stuff at the end of the day. All of that responsibility is on you. You don't get to shuffle it off on somebody else and say, well, it was his decision, it was his choice. Um, there's there's 80,000 different departments that you're managing when you're running a show. It's not as easy as just going into a bunch of writers and saying, all right, guys, let's crank out a script because that's what your job is as a writer, and that's super fun. But when you're managing, when you're running a show, you then also have to deal with well, this craft service person over here is having a problem with drinking, and we're going to maybe have to have her go into rehab. You know, this actor isn't very happy it's because this actor is. It's always craft service. <laughs> this actor's not very happy because this actor over here is is, is saying this. You, you you really have to manage people, and you have to keep a level head, and it will make you crazy and it overwhelms your life. But it is, and it's funny. I have friends who work on other shows, which I won't name because it'll probably give way too much. They bear, it seems that they barely write anymore. They're like, they wish they could just have the luxury of sitting in a writer's room and writing all the time. All of their time is managing personalities and basically maintaining the, 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 the you know, the lie of happiness that is the show going forward, that everyone's happy and everything's fine. It's, it's managing people. Um, I, th- I mean, I think there's a few different questions there. I think to the first one, and this is, you know, my own cynical view, but I think given um, where we are today with the networks and how... Um, fragmented they are and how niche specific they are and all of them knowing exactly what they want at any given time. Um, I honestly think for better or worse it's, it's less writer driven than it is sort of idea driven and brand driven. I think anybody could have walked in on the day that I pitched Royal Pains and sold Royal Pains and I think I could have walked in on that day and pitched a million other ideas and not have sold any of those. They had just bought the um, syndication rights to House and they wanted an original medical show to pair with House. So I think it goes to luck and timing, and it also goes to knowing who your buyer is and what they're looking for. Um, and I, um, I hadn't done anything before. I, I worked on the staff of one show that was canceled, like while the pilot was still airing, it was coming out badly. Um, and then I had this long period of, of not working, so I'd never really had the experience to work in a managerial position on a show. Um, and uh, and I knew that um, the network knew that, but they had had really um, shitty experiences previously pairing inexperienced creators with veteran showrunners, so their um, their inclination was to let me do it on my own and I said, I, I think you guys that's really flattering and also completely insane because I have no idea what I'm doing um, so uh, I hooked up with Michael Rausch, who's somewhere Michael. in the audience over there <laughs> Hi Michael okay. um, and uh, and he came on board after the pilot and um, it was really, you know, sort of uh, a great marriage and to this day we still um, do it together so I, I think you know it, it's less about um, what does this person not bring to the table in terms of experience because there's always solutions to that but um, and then I think you hit the nail on the head it, it's being uh, it's being the painter and the CEO at the same time and in any other business that would make completely no sense yeah. but once you let you let go of, of controlling that canvas then it, it ceases to have any reason for being because it's not coming from the person who sat down and said okay I have an image in my head of what this is going to be so I think it's making sure that all the millions of people who work in all those departments have a sense of what the show was created to be, and you make sure those people are good at what they do, and then you're sort of there to do these, um, you know, million different things at the same time. We're working on um, ten episodes right now at the same time in, in various stages of outlining, writing. Um, who is it? That's Brian Van Holt back there. Oh, oh hey. <laughs> Big fan. Um, so it, it's it's really time management is the hardest part of the job, and that's what you have to figure mm-hmm. out. Yeah, I, I don't know if it helps to know the the process. It's, I'm sure it's different for every show, but um, within reason, um, 
used to be for our show, you'd have to send in a pitch paragraph, basically, of what you plan to write your episode about. And then you send that to your, your partners at the studio. Our partner was Warner Brothers. And so the studio executives say, okay, that sounds great. Go ahead and write that. Um, and then you would write a, uh, an outline. And you send the outline to the executives and, and at the studio and at the network. And then they say, okay, but what about this and what about that? And um, and, and they, they either love it or they hate it or they have questions. They always have questions. And then you're allowed to go to script. And then you write the script and you send it to the studio and network. And you all get on the phone and they ask you a million other questions. And then you do all your revisions. And eventually you shoot the episode. And then you send your cut in, and then you get on the phone, and they have questions and revisions. It's very executive-driven. You have a studio, and you have a network, and everybody has notes, and everybody has thoughts. Um, I was fortunate enough to have a show on for a long time where I outlived my regime, being Jordan. Um, and I always one say, year, man. <laughs> Martin had one glorious year. Together. It was a glorious year, trust me. Um, it, we, we were on long enough to have three regimes, four regimes. Actually, um, so we were a show that couldn't get anyone fired, and I think that that they don't squeeze as tightly. That really is the end all be all in my mind. Was we didn't have anyone who was going to get screamed at, yelled at, or lose their job if our episode didn't do well. We were also on a small network where ratings didn't really matter. As a matter of fact, they had a whole campaign to prove to you that ratings didn't matter when, when nobody was watching Gossip Girl. So, um, so uh, they, um, the, the thing is, I had like blissful five years of we'd get on the phone and they, I don't write outlines because the outlines, they just ask you questions that are going to be in the script anyway. So I got to the point where I didn't have to hand in an outline. I would just literally, we'd write the script, we'd send it in, and they'd go, could you would maybe think about this or maybe think about that? And we'd be like, great, we'll look at it. And quite frankly, that was such a blissful arrangement, and that's how we made the show for a long time. And it's one of the reasons we succeeded, um, that they, they don't want to hear that. Um, but I will also say that when they didn't squeeze as tightly, we would consider the notes more. Like, you know, if we had executives who were like, you got to do this, we would push back and we would fight them. But if they'd say, could you just take a look at it, I'd sit in my office going, why don't they get it? Like, what's the note behind the note? What is, but it's the partnership, long-winded answer, it's the partnership for a showrunner is very much with your executives, the people that are paying to make the show, the people that are putting the show on the air. And, and, and as you said, it shouldn't really exist because most writers are solitary beasts. And they, they sit in their room and they tell their stories. And then you become the CEO of a company. Overnight, you're managing all kinds of people and you're managing your talent. You know, our show was made 3,000 miles away. So some days that was great. And some days it was, it was really difficult. Um, we didn't see dailies until a couple days after the stuff was shot. So when there's a problem with your dailies, you're going to go, you have to go reshoot something because you can't just walk onto set and be consulted at the time. Um, so sometimes that was good and sometimes it was bad, but you're managing your talent, you're managing your writers. As you said, you know, we had three editors working on three different episodes at once while you're breaking another episode. You've got a writer off on another episode and you're shooting a sixth episode. So there's always episodes going on and a showrunner's job is to manage all of that and make people feel like they're, you know, you know and Liz, still inspired. And knowing and Kyle, I mean, it, it's a good point of demarcation as we finish up with you all, but... Mark had this show that lasted for nine seasons. You each, and I don't need to. You guys. to the table. But my, but my question is, you think it's about table people. Now we get the division. 
But as you think about show running, I, I'm curious to see, you know, the notes process is overwhelming. I think it's become more overwhelming in some cases. I don't know what your experiences were, but how do you, when you look back and the shows are no longer existing, do you feel like I held my ground and it was the right thing to do, or do you feel like I made concessions and I wish I didn't make those concessions because who knows what would have happened? How do you, how do you, in the show running process, how do you determine for yourselves how to manage the network and the studio and all of the feedback and notes that come in because it's both a creative decision and a political decision that you have to balance? Yeah, I think it's it's hard. I mean, I definitely remember coming to a crossroads with that in, in between our seasons. You know, we'd had season one, and then to get season two picked up, I had to kind of go in and do a song and dance. Basically, how to make the show completely different from season one. And it was like... Uh, like it was hard because it was like take out this love triangle enough of the foster kid stuff and I was like uh, it's a kid about, it's a show about a foster kid based on this kind of love triangle so um, it was a little hard and I remember it, it was weird I definitely got to a point season two where um, I mean I won't bore you with the money issue because probably most people haven't seen the show but there was like there was a thing where it was like if you continue to tell this romantic story between these two characters I, I remember someone said to me like like it was some like it was kind of a it wasn't that vague a threat, but it was like do what you will with it or like like be damned. I can't remember what the word was, uh, but it was it was this very it was basically like if you want to keep doing that, we're canceling your show. And I remember like being feeling really scared and definitely backing off and being like, okay, I'm not gonna. I don't want to push that. I don't want the show to get canceled. Did the show get canceled anyway? Yes. Um, but do I inherently feel that I was like steered in a direction? No, I, I, I found the process, I mean, as, as, as annoying as it can be to just be under a constant barrage of notes, like, and n never knowing what your day is going to be based on the notes call. It's like, okay, I have a notes call at 1045, so it's like, is my day going to be ruined by 1130 or, you know, mm -hmm. one time I did do one bad thing. I was on a notes call and it was going <laughs> so badly and I literally could not understand the notes. Like, we were all speaking English, I don't know what it was, but like, it was literally, I couldn't understand it and I, um... I updated my Facebook status. Wow. Wow. And then someone emailed me and they were like, mm. I responded and they're like, interesting. This was at 157. It was like the guy who was giving me the notes. And he was like, are you mad? And I was like, I was like, you got that from wow? And then I was, I was like a really powerful wow. But um, there was, I mean, it was like speechless. But, but for the most part, what I was, what, what, what I found with the notes, which I actually really did believe, and I don't always think this, but in my case on this show, I really think the process made the show better. Like, I really, I can't, you know, aside from being canceled, which sucks, <laughs> I definitely can't look back at it and say, like, these notes were terrible and blah, 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 because the truth is, yeah, I didn't know what I was doing. It was my first time running a show, and I was always amazed by then. We just had a screening for it earlier, and, like, I was watching it, and I'm like, it's amazing how you start out with some idea, and, like, just by having to defend it and be poked and prodded, even if, like, you don't necessarily agree with what they're saying, just having to be so in it and defend and be able to articulate what you want, what story you're trying to tell, like, the process does get the best thing out in a super compromised amount of time. I mean, the time is really, to me, the problem, not the process. So, uh, my ex my experience felt pretty good. I, I I didn't. I don't feel like I had had a lot of complaints or felt compromised. If anything, I feel like you get so many notes 
that eventually it comes full circle and you actually get to do what you want because there's nowhere left to go but what you originally wanted. <laughs> so maybe you just get there in a way that's more palatable. Or a circle of confusion. You know what's interesting off of that is it makes me think back to the showrunner question. One thing that I think is hugely important is you have to be able to answer like all questions at all times. And you have to be able to, on a dime, if you know, this, it, disparate departments are asking things, you have to be able to sound like you know what you're talking about, even if it's complete bullshit, mm-hmm. with authority. You know, and that, that's a huge part of the job, to kind of take it back to the, yeah. the earlier question. You have to learn how to be good at being full of shit. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I wish The Unusuals was still on. Oh, thank you. That was a great show. You know who doesn't, Jeremy? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. That was a great show. Um, you know, shows don't get canceled because they're good because they're bad mm-hmm. um, they get canceled because nobody's watching them um, unless at, you're on the CW yeah <laughs> which I'm thinking of going to the CW <laughs> but you know there's a story at the end of um, the war for late night where Lauren Michaels tells uh, uh, about you know he quit Saturday Night Live after the first six or seven years and he sat down uh, in his exit interview across from uh, you know one of the high level executives and they said Look, I understand why you're leaving, but, um, you know, we pay you a certain amount of money to make a certain number of episodes in a certain number of days for a certain price. Nowhere in your contract does it say that the show has to be good. If you feel like it has to be good, that's on you. You can't get mad at us for getting in your way because that's not our our criteria. Um, You know, for me, show running, it's all creative problem solving, and it's all about convincing you're subversive you have to convince the network that you're doing what they want while still doing what you want um, and so it's a the hardest part about it like I think all of us would do the creative for a lot less money than um, than we get paid but we get paid the the amount of money we get paid because we have to spend 50 to 60 percent of our time doing network and studio politics and um, you know my philosophy is to, to try to have as much fun as possible while I'm doing the show. So I did My Generation, which was a, a documentary-style show um, about you know these high school kids and where they ended up 10 years later. And, and we had this one character who was uh, a music producer. Uh, and I wanted to do a, a storyline where, you know, for like four episodes, we would bring in the real band and we would have them. They would write a, a, a song for the show and we would have show the character producing it. And and it would be a documentary style, so um, they're not actors. Um, and it was going to be a B-unit side shoot. We'd just like, float actors in to interact with this band and these characters. And so they're like, great, where are the pages? And I was like, well, I can't really write pages because they're not actors and it's meant to be real. So we're just going to improv the whole thing. And they were like, so where are the pages? And, <laughs> and you know... I managed to convince uh, you know a major television studio to spend a quarter million dollars for four days of total improvisation. Uh, we brought the band in, we brought the actors in, we told the band, you can't do anything wrong because if you're uncomfortable being on camera, just be uncomfortable being on camera. The stuff came out great, and the episodes, um, you know, is work that I'm immensely proud of and at the end of the day I've made 18 hours of television as a show creator in my life that I think are 18 of the best hours that I could make and you know you have to consider that a victory if, I mean if the show comes on if the show comes on and people don't watch it that's not your fault their job is to market the show and get the eyeballs your job is to make the show so you know you've done your job 
Uh, and uh, that's how you sleep at night, I think. Kyle, you get the last word on this, and then we're wrapping it up. Well, I won't repeat. You know, the um, the awful parts are um, are worse than everybody's saying. They're it's just it's just terrible. Um, but um, I also found that to be like kind of the best part. Like you know, with um, with Lone Star, we had a we had a feisty network president who liked to throw things out like after you'd shot them, like he, like pretty close to when you needed to air them, and. Um, I kind of loved it. Like, as a writer and a not particularly um, athletic person, it was as close as I ever came to, like, sports. Like, it was... That was, like, fourth quarter, two minutes left. Like, it's three people, a whiteboard, a hotel room, and we have to write um, half of a script to shoot tomorrow. And, like, I would get super amped for that. It was just... It was a cool challenge. It wasn't always great, and sometimes you did shitty work under those circumstances, but... It was a cool thing to like get locked into that. That was actually one of my favorite parts. Of the, my co-showrunners um, hated it, but huh. I used but to really enjoy. So. Yeah, it's a little yeah. bit. I used to be enjoy stuck, uh, enjoy being stuck in a hotel room with them. So, um, so sometimes I appreciated the terrible parts, which is probably the only way to do the job. Yeah. Can I add one real quick thing? Um, it's it's funny because Noah was talking about like you know the marketing of the show, and we. I think that especially the past, I'll make this super quick, I promise, especially this past season, we kind of realized that you can't count on a network to do dick for you, not to be crass, but you can't. I mean, there, there's so much money involved in promoting all their other shows. You have to do, I think, you know, this is me personally, and Bill feels the same way, you have to do everything possible to get that show in front of as many eyeballs as possible. You know, that means you got to become annoying on Twitter, throw events where people come and watch the show, get people talking. I think you have to do that, and you you have to become kind of an impresario. You have to be a showman it's because part it's showman. it's part that's part of the yep. gig now. And I really truly believe that the reason the show is on TBS now is because we really cater to this very vocal group of fans who because yep. people listen to that network networks listen to that. And if you have the and same way with Scrubs, this very local group, local very vocal group of people uh, follow the show around, and you can literally point to them and go, no, look, there are 8,000 comments right here, people saying they love the show. That means something. So anything you can do to engage people as a showrunner, and it's totally out you never think of that when you're creating a show. You think, I'm going to write it, edit it, shoot it, it's going to be great. That's a huge part of it. Another huge part of it is doing what you can to go, hi, this is my show, I'm proud of it, please watch it. You know? Well, look, we wouldn't all be here if it wasn't for social media and the way to connect us all, and fans, and creators and people love television so thank you for the time thank you guys now leaving nerdist.com